If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Well, welcome to the Considering Catholicism podcast. My name is Greg Smith, your host. And if it sounds like my voice is cracking and uh, <clears throat> kind of messed up, well, well, it is. I, uh, I just got back a few days ago from the Holy Land, uh, Israel. Talked about it in the last episode, going to talk about it in this episode. Um, but Ten days of travel, uh, different climates, uh, planes, trains, automobiles, and uh, coming back here to a different climate um, and trying to recover with my sleep. And, well, the long and short of it is I've got to set off some allergies that I've got and uh, I've got something of a frog in my throat. So forgive me if I don't sound uh, normal, but I feel great and it's good to be back. Uh, but it's good to have been there because what a trip. We were gone 10 days. There were 37, 38 people with us on the trip. We uh, were working with a tour company, 206 Tours, that I've worked with for a number of years now. They do a fantastic job. All they do is Catholic pilgrimages to various locations around the world, including Italy and France and Ireland and Eastern Europe and Israel, the Holy Land, of course, and so we just had a great experience, the logistics, the accommodations, everything was handled so well. And I think that everyone along, it just maximized your experience because you don't have to worry about all of those kinds of logistical things and all of the kinds of mechanical things associated with it. And you, and you can really focus on seeing and, and getting into and experiencing the places that you're visiting. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, we're planning future trips to the Holy Land, to Italy, to Rome, to Florence, uh, Assisi, some amazing places to experience and understand the Catholic Christian story throughout history. And if you would like to come with me on one of those, then send me an email to greg at consideringcatholicism.com because we're starting to make tentatively some plans for 2024 and 2025 about uh, some pilgrimages that we'd like to take, and I would love to have you join us. So this is the second of two episodes that I'm calling my Holy Land Diaries. In the first, which will be released just a couple of days before this one, I shared my impressions and insights from the Sea of Galilee region. Now, in this episode, I'm going to talk about Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem, what we saw, what we experienced, and and what insights I can share with you from having been there and seen that. And we'll be releasing this episode on Holy Thursday or Monday Thursday, as some of my Protestant friends know it, which means that if you listen to it when it comes out on Thursday or on Good Friday or Holy Saturday, I'm going to be sharing here in the next half an hour some thoughts about Jesus's arrest and trial and crucifixion and resurrection based on being in the places where those things actually happened last week. Uh, the things didn't happen last week. I was in those places last week. 
But just as I did in the last episode, I want to sort of set the table by discussing the geography and history of Jerusalem. Because if you don't understand that, then you're never really going to understand what happened there during Holy Week 2,000 years ago. But, okay, you know, let me take a little bit of a sidebar here to say something important about Christianity as a religion that I think is often misunderstood, especially in the 21st century. Christianity is a historical religion. Now, what I mean by that is that Christianity is planted, rooted, grounded, founded, use whatever word you wish, in claims that certain events actually took place in certain places and at certain times. And I think this is in opposition to the sort of postmodern instinct that reduces religion in general, and Christianity in particular, to a set of spiritual principles and interior insights or sentiments. You see, there are those that claim that Christianity is really at its base all about love or tolerance or social justice or finding inner peace or spiritual growth or, or whatever. But I think it's important to remember that those are the results or the consequences of actual historical events. You see, either there was or there wasn't a man named Jesus or Joshua bar Joseph from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, who was a direct descendant of King David and was born in David's city of Bethlehem, who on or around 3 p.m. on or around Friday, April 3, A.D. 33, depending on how the various dates are calculated, was crucified by Roman soldiers on a rocky knoll over a limestone quarry just outside the northwest wall of the city of Jerusalem and then was buried in a cave in that quarry. And on the following Sunday, just a couple days later, he either did or he didn't rise from the dead and walk out of that tomb. Now, if those actual events actually happened in those places and at those times, it changes everything. And there are consequences for the world and for each of our lives if they did happen. And love and peace and justice and transformation of our hearts and exterior lives and the social structures of the world and all of that follows. But if none of those events actually happened, what does that mean? Well, let me not give you my opinion. Let me give you the words of St. Paul from his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be 
pitied. If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Unquote. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. You see, Christianity has never been, and it can never be really a private, interior, spiritual religion. Christianity is, by its nature, public and historical. Either these things happened for real in these places at these times for all the world to see, or they didn't. If they did, that changes everything. If they didn't, it changes nothing. And as St. Paul says, we are to be pitied because our Christianity is pathetic and worthless if it is not grounded in historic events. And as Paul says, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and there is no afterlife. If these things did not happen in these places and at these times. So, one of the reasons for traveling to the Holy Land is to see with your own eyes, to walk with your own feet, to touch with your own hands, to experience with your own senses these places. Just last week, we sat, our group did, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was arrested, and we all got a chance to kneel and pray and kiss the stone on which Jesus prayed that night sweating blood, where he said to the Father, not my will, but yours. And then our group got to descend into the dungeon in the high priest's house, where Jesus spent his last hours before his trial, and we, we walked the Via Dolorosa. That's the route that Jesus took from his trial to his crucifixion, carrying his cross. And when we got to the place where he was crucified, we touched the stone where the cross had been planted. We knelt before and kissed the slab inside the empty tomb from which his body rose. And all of that grounds our faith because either these things happened here at that time or they didn't. And if they did, it makes me a new man with a new life and a new perspective on life and a new set of responsibilities and a, a new Lord and a new direction and a new hope. But if these things didn't really happen in these places, then if it's all just a lie, then there's no point. And any amount of good feelings or um, you know, sentiments or desires to be a, a good guy and love the world and be nice to my family and be nice to strangers and, uh, you know, contribute to the poor and, you know, take in rescue pets and all this kind of stuff. That's all well and good, but it isn't Christianity. You know, in the last episode, I talked about this old idea that a pilgrimage to the Holy Land is like a fifth gospel. I didn't invent that idea. It's been talked about for, you know, I don't know, hundreds of years as far as I know or thousands. And, and here's what that means. It doesn't mean that there is a fifth gospel. It doesn't mean that there's some new revelation or some new secret book. It's just this. 
The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are like four paintings painted by four different painters. They're, they're all portraits of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and the things that he said and did, particularly in the last few years of his life, and particularly focused on the last week or so before his death and then his resurrection. And just like four painters will look at the same scene and each bring their own sense of perspective and color and emphasis and composition, that doesn't mean that they're contradicting each other, but they'll each bring sort of their own viewpoint to it. And by reading all four of the Gospels, you gain a more complete, a sort of wraparound vision of Jesus. Well, the idea of the fifth gospel is that when you travel to the Holy Land yourself and you walk in these places and you see and feel and touch and experience, it gives you your own sort of perspective into these events. Now, you can, in your own mind, sort of imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can imagine him walking up the hill. You can imagine he and Peter and James and John and Andrew or whatnot on the boats in the Sea of Galilee. And, and that creates, in addition to the four sort of visualizations of the Gospels, this sort of fifth visualization. And so for a long time, centuries and centuries, people have talked about the pilgrimage to the Holy Land having this kind of you know, this kind of value as bringing a sort of fifth gospel experience to your mind or to your imagination. Because it, it places the events that you read about in the gospels in some context, right? And as much as that was true in Galilee, which is what I shared in the last episode, it's even more profound in Jerusalem. Because I'm just telling you, when you kneel in the grotto of the nativity in Bethlehem, right, the place where the baby Jesus was born, and you get down on your knees and you kiss the spot where he was born, I, I think you're confronted with a choice. Do you believe that this happened? And when you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and you kneel in this spot where you bend down under this altar, and you stick your hand down in this hole, uh, and you can touch the cold limestone. And, and that's the, the sort of post hole that they put the cross into. You're confronted with this choice. Do I believe this? And, and then inside that same church, when you go down these stairs and across this area and you, you enter the, the Holy Sepulchre itself, the, the place where the empty tomb was, it's a... I'll talk more about it in a little bit, but it's it's a kind of a little small church or chapel inside a bigger dome built over the empty tomb. And when you go inside there and you kneel before the slab in that empty room and you touch and kiss that cold stone, I, I think you're confronted with a choice. Do you really believe that he rose? I, I, I don't think you can kneel there and touch it and kiss it and not have to ask yourself that question. Do I really believe that he rose from this stone? And I think that at those moments, your Christianity can't be, it can't be this private religion that's grounded in your feelings, your, 
your feelings are either grounded in these public events or, or your feelings to some degree are pointless. That's what St. Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 15 when I read it a few moments ago. And the very last sentence of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31. So the last sentence in John's Gospel is this. These words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And I think that one of the principal values of a pilgrimage to the Holy Land is that it makes our faith less abstract, um, less conceptual, less rooted in pictures or movies that we've seen uh, or homilies or sermons that we've heard. And you are really forced to choose because you've stood there and you've been to those places and you've seen them and you have to ask, do you believe in the historicity of the gospel or not? Because as John says there in the last verse of his gospel, you know, if you believe, you have life in his name. And if you don't, you don't. So, you know, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land is interesting and you learn a lot. Um, a few episodes back, right before we left, Ed the Protestant and I had an episode, you can look in the archives a few episodes back, and we talked about why Catholics go on pilgrimages. And I think that in addition to all of the other reasons, there's this one, and that is that your faith can no longer be abstract when you stand there. In a sense, it's tested. You are either going to believe this or not. Hey, let me just take a quick break. I'll get back to my thoughts about the Holy Land and Jerusalem in just a few moments. But can I ask you to consider supporting this podcast? It's produced by a nonprofit ministry called One Whirling Adventure. Our mission is to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. Now, we have a very small budget to produce this, but it is a real budget, and it does cost real time and resources to make it happen. We love doing it, and we have dreams of improving it and expanding it, uh, reaching more people, doing more interesting things, but we need your help to keep it going and growing. So. We have a crowdfunding goal of $35,000 for 2023. Would you please go to consideringcatholicism.com? And when you get there, you'll see a hover button and a support tab at the top. We've also put a donate link in the episode description of the podcast uh, on your various podcast apps. Now, all of those links will take you to our crowdfunding page. Would you consider giving a one-time or monthly donation to help us reach our goal for 2023, to cover our costs and to share the vision of historic Catholic Christianity with more people? And thank you for considering helping others to consider Catholicism. 
Now, one of the things that you always get asked when you visit these places, and and you should be asked because it's, you know, it's an obvious question. It's a natural question. It's very understandable. Uh, I found myself asking it the first time I visited any of these places is, uh, are we sure that these things actually happened in these places that we're visiting? Right? So when we go to Bethlehem and we go to the church in the nativity and we say, hey, here's this spot in the grotto of the nativity where Jesus was born, you know, and we kneel down and, you know, uh, venerate or kiss that spot, how do we know that this is where that happened? And I think it's, like I said, a very natural question. So the answer that I've always given about that, and I gave it uh, last week several times, is look, um, as Americans, there are certain events that occurred in American history that we don't forget, and we don't forget you know, where they happened. So if we talk about, say, let's go back, um, take John F. Kennedy being shot, right? President John F. Kennedy being shot, was it 1963? So that would have been what, 56, 60 years ago, right? So 60 years ago, John F. Kennedy is shot in Dallas, shot at a particular corner, in Dallas. I've been there when I've taken trips to Dallas. First time I took a trip to Dallas, or one of the first times I took a trip to Dallas, um, I said, I got to go see this. And I, my hotel wasn't too far away. And I walked over and, you know, and saw it and kind of looked at the site. And, you know, there's a, you know, museum there and, you know, memorial or whatever. <clears throat> and then, uh, and then the same thing too, you know, where, since we're talking about presidents getting shot, what about where Lincoln was shot, right? Some of us remember uh, Abraham Lincoln was shot uh, in Ford's Theater in what, 1965, right, into the Civil War? What, 160 years ago, approximately? Uh, never do math in public or on a podcast uh, off the top of your head, but, right, so we remember these things. Or, or let's take about, so, so we talk about Civil War. Uh, some of you may have been to the Civil War battlefields. Uh, maybe on a vacation or whatnot, you've gone to Gettysburg, and you get out and you walk up, you know, Little Round Top, where the first main regiment or whatever it was held off the Confederate charge, or you walked over to that area there where Pickett's, the famous Pickett's charge occurred, or, you know, you've gone to Antietam and, and you tour that, and you, they say this is a sunken lane where, you know, Mayor's Brigade was decimated, the Irish Brigade. These things are remembered. They were big deals. Well, what we have to remember is that Jesus was a very big deal during his day. I mean, tens of thousands of people followed Jesus. The whole country was aware of what he was doing. When, when he was up in Galilee, I talked last episode about how we went to the hill of the multiplication. That's where he multiplied the loaves and the fishes for 5,000 men, right? And that didn't include, the, the, didn't include women and children the way that the, the verse is written. So, you know, who knows? There's five, seven, eight, ten thousand or more people, and that's in a remote area relatively, on a hillside outside town. When Jesus was going through the major cities, tens of thousands of people, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people were turning out. When he came in on Palm Sunday, the whole city turned out. His crucifixion, partly the reason that he was crucified is the Romans were afraid that the entire city of Jerusalem, which was swollen with people coming for uh, Passover that year was going to erupt in this giant violent riot, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the city at the time. Everybody knew about Jesus of Nazareth. In, in biblical and extra-biblical sources, it says all of these things were incredibly public 
The whole country was aware. So it was very natural, right, for people to say, well, where did that happen? Where was he crucified? Where was he buried? When he came in on Palm Sunday, where was that? Where was his trial? We know where these things happened. The trial occurred in the Roman garrison of the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. Uh, people would have said Peter was a huge deal, right, in his day after the resurrection. And when the church began to grow, would have been only natural, as I explained in the last episode in Capernaum, this busy, you know, the city by this busy road. People go, well, so where is Peter's house? Where did he come from? Or for people to go up to Nazareth, his followers, pilgrims, curious people, where did Jesus grow up? Where was his house? So within, even within Jesus' lifetime, people would have asked these questions. And certainly within the years immediately after his death and resurrection, his rapidly growing followers, tens and tens of thousands of people converting, would have said, well, where was he born? Where was the house? Where was the he crucified? Where was uh, the tomb? Where was this? Where was that? Where did, they hold, where did they hold the Last Supper? Why wouldn't people want to go find those things? And they went and found them. And when I was talking about the Civil War a minute ago, right, that's a, what, what we say, 160 years ago? I have been, and I'm sure some of you who are Americans, uh, certainly some of, uh, we have listeners all around the world who listen to this podcast. So, you know, translate this from America. I'm talking about American examples, but translate them to examples from your own country or whatever, right? Go back to places where things happened 200, 300 years earlier. You know, you can go to Europe and you can walk everywhere and say this happened here and this happened here and this was 300 years ago, 400 years ago, 500 years ago. There's no dispute where they happened. Everybody knows where this or that important event happened. It was remembered. It was a big deal. So what happened in the case of Jesus is it's not so much that there's a dispute about where they happened. There, there can be issues about the, arche, the archaeological layers because in 70 AD, the Romans leveled the city and then it gets rebuilt and then it gets leveled again and it gets rebuilt and it gets leveled again. And over the eons, there are sort of uh, um, not geological layers, but archaeological layers, right? So when buildings get knocked down, stones get moved, new Buildings get built on top of them. You know, walls get moved, this and that. And so, right, I'm not an archaeologist, and this isn't a podcast about archaeology, but, you know, archaeologists have to dig down to the appropriate layer, and they can find, you know, using all of their methodologies, you know, the, the correct layer corresponding to the year of the city. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, the think about it this way, the GPS coordinates of these things are not in doubt. So people would have said, this is where that happened. This is where his trial was. This is where the crucifixion was. This is where that was. And it may be, okay, granted, it may be when we walk the Via Dolorosa from the site of his trial to the site of his crucifixion, that as we zigzag through those alleys, that the streets aren't don't follow the same layout of the streets in his day because new buildings and houses have been built. So you can't say, hey, the corner was right here, and then you turn left at this corner. But there's no doubt that we know where the Antonia Fortress was, which was the Roman garrison where Pilate held his trial. I mean, we, we can, you know, fix that within a 10-yard radius. It was right here. And, and he walked from here up to here where the stone quarry was. And again, things were built over the stone quarry or things knocked down, walls moved, 
But there's no doubt where the stone quarry was, uh, Calvary, Golgotha, where the crucifixion happened at. So when we walk the Via Dolorosa, we're going from sort of GPS coordinate to GPS coordinate. Um, what happened historically was that all these sites were remembered and preserved by his followers, the Christians, and probably other curious people, uh, for a couple hundred years in the same way that we remember sites in our cities, whether you're a European or American, that are two, 300 years old. You know, we have in America, and go back to, you know, sites from the Revolutionary War that were basically you know, just before that, close to 300 years. Because within 300 years, the Roman Empire converts to Christianity. So the Emperor Constantine converts, and his mother, St. Helena, came back to the home, Holy Land with all the resources of the mother of the Roman Emperor. And she comes back, she's a Christian, and so she goes and says, okay, so where was this, and where was this? Where was the trial? Where was the crucifixion, where was he born, so on and so forth. Where was Mary's house in Nazareth? Where, where were these things? And then what she does with all of her resources is she brings back some relics. But what she does then is she builds churches over the sites. So you say, okay, well, if this is the site of the crucifixion, then let's build a church over that site to preserve the location. This was the site of the nativity, let's build a church over that location. And so when we go to those churches, you're seeing this big thing built on that GPS coordinate. And when you kneel down in there and touch this stone, can you say that it was this exact rock? You know, it's like when we see the relics in Rome. So whenever we go to Rome, if you come with me on a pilgrimage there, we'll go to the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, where Paul's tomb is. And I don't think there's any dispute that it's Paul's tomb. And I, again, for the same reasons, his followers would have preserved his tomb, and they knew where Paul was buried. He, the Christians preserved that. But there are, there are at his tomb, this, there's this chain, this length of, I don't know, two, three feet of chain, and it's supposedly a relic. This was the chain that bound Paul at his crucifixion. And then there's another little church just a couple hundred yards from the Colosseum, uh, Church of San Pietro in Vincoli, which is, uh, they have a length of chain that supposedly bound Peter, Church of St. Peter in chains, Italian. And so when we go to that and we take pilgrimages there, we say, well, are we sure that this is the, you know, the, the, this is 10 or 20 links of chain? Are we, do we know for sure that this is that chain? And you say, well, look, I mean, it's natural that the followers of Peter and Paul would have preserved any artifacts after his death, you know, if they could get the chain from the centurions or from the body or whatever, they would have kept that and preserved it. But can, I, can we scientifically verify that it was these links of chains? Now, how would you even prove that? But if it wasn't these links of chain, uh, then it was something very similar to them. And so there's a sort of act of faith on that, but there's no dispute that the tomb of Paul is here, that the tomb of Peter is here. Because again, these, their executions were public events. And then the Christians began to venerate those locations, and those locations were preserved and remembered, and then things were built on top of them. So when you go to the Holy Land, you know, it's only natural, it's a very natural question to say, are we sure the things that we're visiting are, you know, the actual places? And I, and I think that's kind of my answer. But what I will say is this, uh, back to that notion of the GPS coordinates, that you really get a sense of the place 
And that contributes to the fifth gospel. So, for example, you go over to the Mount of Olives, which is this kind of hill opposite Jerusalem. There's a, a valley, the Kidron Valley. And again, I think, uh, you know, words like the Sea of Galilee or the Kidron Valley or the Mount of Olives are all relative to your um, experience of seas or mounts or valleys. I grew up in the Southwest U.S., and so, you know, I'm familiar with the Sierra Mountains and the Pacific Ocean and Death Valley, and so when I, or Yosemite Valley, so when I think of valleys and mountains and seas, I imagine something much bigger than what they were, but if you live in other parts of the world, then, um, you know, those are relative terms, right? But when you're up on the Mount of Olives, there's no question this is the Mount of Olives, and one of the things we did is we walked the path last week from where on Palm Sunday, Jesus would have come down. Because again, that's not really a dispute. You're up here on the hill. You're going to go into the gate of Jerusalem. You know where the gates of Jerusalem were. You can see the Temple Mount right there because the Muslim Dome of the Rock is built on it. And so you would have followed down this hill. And, you know, there's natural sort of contours to it. You come down this way and up the little hill there. And along the way, you go by the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this is interesting because the... Olive trees that are in the Garden of Gethsemane are the ones that are currently there are like six or 700 years old. And olive trees live a long time. Although growing up in California, right, in Northern California, we have these redwoods that are 2,000, 2,500 years old that, you know, date from the time of Christ or before that. So trees apparently can, you know, live a really long time. But these olive trees in Gethsemane are, are there. They're six, 700 years old. But uh, I guess the way it works is that when these olive trees sort of die, the root system just like new shoots come up out of the root. So these trees are six, 700 years old, but they're coming up out of the same root system of the trees that were there at Jesus's time. And so when we see the, the trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't have any doubt that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not necessarily a public park, but it's a garden right there. And you can see the Temple Mount right there. And these trees, are, are they the exact wood? Well, they're, they come from the same root system. And there's a big rock in the middle of it where tradition is that this is the rock that Jesus, you know, prayed on the last night where he said to the Father, uh, you know, I would that you would take this cup from me, but, you know, not my will, but yours, right? And then he was arrested there. And again, that would be the kind of thing that Jesus's followers immediately would go, hey, there's, there's the rock, there's the garden, there's the rock. And when you stand, you sort of see the topography of these things. Um, you know, here, here's an example that I think is super interesting. I, I don't, I, again, we have listeners from all around the world and our imaginations of physical places, you know, have a lot to do with where we come from and how we visualize things. But, you know, a lot of the sort of Christmas story stuff that you get in movies or uh, you know, Bible story books or children's books that have picture Bibles or whatever that sort of show the shepherds and the nativity. A lot of it looks kind of European or American. So you see this kind of meadow, um, kind of rolling meadow, and maybe like a barn in the rolling meadow. But when you go to Bethlehem today, now there's modern buildings that have been built there or buildings that are 100 years old or whatever. But, you know, obviously the same buildings are not there from, you know, 2,000 years ago and there's cars and streets and stuff. But the topography is what you see. And it's nothing like that uh, rolling meadow thing. It's a very steep 
um, hilly, hilly is not even the right word. It's, it's steep like limestone cliffs around these gullies or valleys or ravines. And with limestone, right, it, it, water opens up caves and, and, and openings in it. And so a lot of the houses in Bethlehem at Jesus' time and even to this day were built on sort of ledges or terraces or kind of breaks in these limestone cliffs. And the sheep wandered up and down these limestone cliffs and terraces and ledges and whatnot looking for grass. And what's interesting is the, the flocks that were kept around Bethlehem, many of them were used for the temple worship. So in other words, they were raising the sheep or the lambs that would be sacrificed in the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to Bethlehem because the Roman census required them to, to, to return to their hometown to be registered, they, they didn't try to go to a hotel, right? So there weren't hotels and the hotel turned them away and they weren't homeless. What happened is they showed up and all of the relatives, Joseph being a descendant who was living and working up in Nazareth, 60, 80 miles to the north, had come down and tried to stay with relatives, but everybody was there until the houses were packed. And so Mary's about to give birth and she can't exactly give birth in a room with 20 people, you know, laying on the floor, relatives and cousins and all this. And so what happened is these houses were built on these sort of limestone ledges and then these kind of natural caves kind of behind the houses and that's where you would put the animal pens. So she goes back into the animal pen to give birth. And in those caves, when we went, we saw them, and you come with us and you'll see them there. Uh, in those caves, the watering troughs for the sheep are stone, okay? Because uh, they're kind of carved out of the rock. And so they fill them with water, like a little cistern. So Mary goes in there and she gives birth to Jesus and... She, remember, wraps him in swaddling clothes. And it was always interesting, like, uh, why did they specify that in the Gospels? Like, if swaddling clothes are baby clothes, you know, the angel says to the shepherd, hey, go to Bethlehem and you find a newborn baby in baby clothes. Well, what else is he going to be wearing, right? Not going to be wearing a tuxedo. He's going to be wearing baby clothes. But there's something very interesting, and these are the kind of fifth gospel insights when you get there, uh, that when you see these places. Because when you go into this cave, you start to realize that he was born uh, in the, the animal pen with the lambs that would be sacrificed in the temple five, six miles away. So already the text is telling us that he is a lamb born in Bethlehem, and he's born in the lamb pen with the lambs for the temple sacrifice. So already God is showing us by arranging the events that way what the future is, foreshadowing the gospel. And then the bit about wrapping him in swaddling clothes and lying, them, lying him in the watering pen. So by wrapping him in these clothes and lying him in this stone inside this cave, that's a foreshadowing of his death and being wrapped and placed into the tomb. So already at his birth, he's the lamb that will be sacrificed. And upon his sacrifice, he will be wrapped with cloths and laid into a cave on a stone. 
So the Bible is full of all of these rich, rich foreshadowings. And when you go to these places and you see them with your own eyes and you walk and you say, okay, this, this helps you again in that fifth gospel way to visualize and understand these things in whole new ways. I think you have another thing that I would say, and this episode's getting a little long, so my Holy Man diary is, is becoming a bit long here. But, uh, you know, one of the things I think that strikes one about Jerusalem, and as you can think about this during Holy Week, is how I'm trying to find exactly the right word, but the word I think I'm going to use is intimate. It all is because the distances, these things are, this is really small compared to, I think, what we're used to in the modern world. Um, you go to Jerusalem and you go, Bethlehem is just, you know, five, six miles that way from the temple. Now it's kind of continuous city. It's almost like a suburb. But then you go into Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, and you see the Temple Mount. It's not more than a quarter mile. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe more, maybe, I don't know five, six hundred meters or something like that, 800 meters away from Gethsemane. And the Caiaphas, the high priest house at the other end is about five, six, eight hundred, nine hundred meters that way. And the Antonov Fortress is, is right here um, where the last, the supper was, the, the room for the last supper is, is just a few hundred meters over here. And again, from those GPS points, from the site of trial to his crucifixion is if we were to draw a straight line a kilometer less i don't know it's just not that far it took longer to walk it because you zigzag and when you're doing the stations of the cross as a pilgrim of course you stop and pray at each of them but all of these events jesus coming into the city on palm sunday the people shouting hosanna uh the last supper his trial, his arrest, his trial, the, um, you know, the multiple trials, the trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the, tri the first trial before Pilate, sh um, schlepping him up to Herod, uh, just a few hundred yards up that way, or meters up that way, uh, and then back to Pilate for the final sentencing and his scourging, and then his walk up to the site of the crucifixion. And then his burial in the tomb, which is just, I mean, maybe 40 meters down from that spot in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre from where the crucifixion would have happened. I think you have a sense that, the word I'm going to say is, like, this is a stage, like a, like a stage play. I'm not saying it's fake. I and mean, that's my whole point when I talk about the opening today. It's not fake. It's very real. But like God stages this whole thing and the actors sort of play this out. And it's very intimate and dramatic and people knew each other. They're familiar with each other. Jesus had taught in the temple. Everybody was related. Everybody knew each other. And one has the sense that there is this script, this, this play that God has prepared that's, that's unrolling and how dramatic it must have been at the time to be caught up into it. And for a very few number of people, very, very, very few, to realize what was happening. You know, I don't know who realized it. Peter didn't realize, and the apostles didn't realize what was happening as it happened. 
<laughs> I mean, I think the only people really who really grasped what was going on in real time during Holy Week in Jerusalem were Jesus and his mother Mary. You know, because all of these things had been shared with her and she treasured in them in her heart. If I had more time, I'd point out, you come with us, we'll point out that there, there's a place near the temple where Mary probably lived at various points in her life when she was a child. There's reasons why they think that. So these were their very familiar little streets within a little kind of kilometer or so radius. And Mary had foreboding and foreknowledge, you know, of some of these things, had treasured them in her heart, knew that she was giving birth to the Messiah, that he was making all things new. And I think that one has this profound sense walking those streets and seeing the topography and seeing how connected all these were, that none of this was random. You know, none of it was chance. None of it, God was in control. And he was playing out a script that he had written. And I think that that should, in some sense, not only ground us in believing these events, as I said at the beginning of this episode, but also in another way, comfort us today. That as crazy as the world seems today, God is in control. The author is in control. There's nothing outside his wisdom. There's nothing outside his sovereignty. There's nothing outside his power and his grace. We don't know always what's going on and how our lives are going to unfold. We're never told that. But we do know that he is Lord. And that all things happen for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I hope that someday you have the opportunity to visit the Holy Land yourself and make this pilgrimage. I hope someday that um, we get to go together and begin to discover these things and that you'll have the opportunity to say to yourself, I believe. I believe that it happened then. And I believe that Jesus is risen and that he has taken a seat at the right hand of God the Father and that all things are directed ultimately to his glory and end and that we are invited to follow him and to play our part in the great cosmic drama that he has prepared for us. God bless. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. 
And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.